Welcome to Financial Planning Explained, and I am your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, Owner and Founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. I'm pleased again to have uh, as panelists with myself, um, I've got Kyle Ryan, Certified Financial Planner, all the way to my left, or my right, your left, and in the center is Ryan Keefe, who's in the process of applying for and studying for his CFP. Um, back by popular demand, uh, we're going through questions and answers. These are commonly asked questions. Uh, in fact, um, a marketing person had given them to us uh, to be able to go through because these are commonly asked questions. And you know, if, if a lot of people ask questions, then guess what? They probably go through a lot of other people's minds. And you know, the purpose of this show is to be educational in nature. And you know, we try to talk about all the different areas of financial planning, whether it be cash management, tax planning, uh, risk management, which is insurance planning, investment planning, retirement planning, and estate planning. And as we've discussed before, they're all kind of intertwined and integrated. And so, you know, let's talk about questions because by us talking about it and serving as a panel kind of serves as a great opportunity to talk about it in real life, okay? Real life examples and things like that. So enjoy the ride. Here we go. Let's go for our first question. How does a Roth IRA work, and what is a backdoor Roth, and how does it work, or is it worth it? You well, want so to, I'll yeah. tackle this one. Okay. Um, so Roth IRA works. Uh, it's pretty simple. You contribute money uh, to the Roth IRA. If you're under age 50, you have a maximum contribution limit per year of six grand. If you're over age 50, uh, you can contribute earned income up to seven grand. Um, you get that extra $1,000 of catch-up. Um, and basically how that works is you contribute. You do not receive a tax deduction for that. It's a non-deductible contribution. Uh, the money sits in the Roth IRA. It grows tax-deferred. And then when you take it out, at the end of its, uh, when, whenever you need that money, it comes out in Mike's two favorite words, my two favorite words as well, tax-free. Um, now, there are some stipulations and some rules that go along with that. Um, you have to at least be age 59 and a half to get the tax-free growth, and the account must be open for at least five years. If you meet both of those requirements, you can take that money out tax-free, um, and it will grow tax-free for the rest of your life. Um, yeah. Uh, one other thing to note there. Um, with the Roth, you know, the Roth IRA is my favorite account. You know, anything that grows tax-free is just truly wonderful. Um, one thing you can also do with the Roth IRA that adds to the flexibility of it, uh, you always have the ability to withdraw your contributions uh, at any point. So, right. you know, again, getting back to what we've discussed in previous weeks being identifying ways to save and what you're saving for. You know, if you have something you're saving for in five years, you know, typically you wouldn't want to use a Roth because you can't withdraw all of it to pay for it. If you're saving for retirement, you know, depending on what your tax situation looks like today versus in retirement, the Roth IRA might be ideal for you. You know, someone in their 20s like Ryan and myself, you know, we have many, many years until we will retire and use that money. The tax-free nature of that growth can save, can make the difference in tens, a lot of money in taxes lots, at the end lots of the and day. Lots, yeah. lots and lots. <laughs> yes. Yep. So, so, you know, the Roth is the mirror to the traditional IRA. Yep. And, you know, the traditional IRA is very simple. You make a contribution to it. You get a tax deduction in the year that you make the contribution, and it grows 
tax deferred, but when you take it out, you're paying tax on the entire amount. Meanwhile, the flip side, the Roth IRA, you don't get the tax deduction going in, but it grows tax deferred. And when you take it out, if you're following the rules, like Ryan pointed out, you take it out in retirement, it's tax-free. So the question is, and it, we actually had an entire episode dedicated to the difference between the IRA and the Roth IRA, and which one should I do? And I, I would strongly encourage uh, to go through and, and, and through our website, you can actually go back to prior episodes. There's a whole episode just on why the one versus the other. But the long and short of it is you, you project out what your tax bracket might be in retirement. If you anticipate that you're going to be in a high tax bracket today and a low tax bracket in retirement, then you contribute to the traditional deductible IRA because you get a deductible at a high tax rate and you're paying taxes at a low tax rate. On the flip side, if you anticipate you're going to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement, then you want to do that. Well, to piggyback on what Kyle was saying is if you're going to be saving for a long period of time, that tax deferred growth ends up being rather enormous when you're dealing with 30 and 40 years. And having a tax-free asset in retirement, trust me, is going to be something you're going to be so glad you did. Yep. Now, the other thing, too, is while you can never predict what the future tax brackets are going to be, I think we can reasonably predict that they're not going to be lower than they are today. Why? I mean, we're in the middle of the um, tax laws that changed in 2018, and they're the lowest tax brackets that we've been in for over 100 years, maybe longer. <coughs> 100 years since I've been alive. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, and with all of the debt that we've been accumulating in the United States, uh, you know, we got to pay for it somehow, and taxes seem like the way it's going to be. So I think the Roth IRA has additional advantages compared to the traditional. And there is <coughs> limits, you know, if you make too much money for the latter half of this question, if you make too much money, you don't have the ability to contribute to a Roth IRA. So what there's a strategy that's called the backdoor Roth. Now, the backdoor Roth IRA works in which you can contribute to a non-deductible traditional IRA. Remember, the IRA, you can take a deduction right. for contribution, so it's very important that it is not deductible. So you don't receive a tax deduction. It's kind of sitting there. You know, it's growing, a non-deductible IRA. If you take it out, you pay taxes, or you simply convert it to the Roth. And then that, that way you get it over to the Roth side. You know, you don't have the same contribution limit that you face with contributing purely to the Roth IRA. And, you know, that's just basically how it works. Now, as for is it worth it, again, it's dependent on everyone's circumstances. There. Right. And also to be to take in a relatively complex uh, topic and make it complexer. <laughs> All right. Not that you do that. Right. Yeah. Not that I can do that. Exactly. <laughs> there, are, there are rules yes. associated with it. So, yes. in other words, if you already have an IRA, yes. then it may make it not worth it. Okay. And we would encourage, you know, give us a call, yep. talk to your accountant, but... You know, there's a pro rata rule, which means that you, the percentage of the amount that you're converting is relative to the overall amount of money that you have in IRA assets. I am going to stop there because <laughs> that is absolutely making it more complex. Yep. Uh, you guys ready to jump into the next question? I think so. Yep. Ooh. <laughs> Hot one. Yeah. How do you combat inflation? Hot topic. Yep. Okay, with the pandemic. Um, you guys want to jump on that or? Well, I'll tell you one thing for sure. It's not by having your cash sit in savings. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. You're actually losing to inflation by roll. Right. Um, you know, 
inflation is, you know, there's too many, too much demand, too few goods. So the price rises. Um, and therefore, you know, people have trouble, you know, getting those certain products at, you know, well, a reasonable cost. You know, lumber had a oh, surge in crazy. inflation recently. Everybody knows that. Yeah, um, yeah and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things that people hear inflation and they get spooked. Um, even the stock markets even get the spooked. Stock markets get yep. spooked. So how one way to combat inflation is to invest in, in stocks and things that will grow um, and outpace inflation. Right. Whereas if you put your money in savings and even some like very conservative bond funds, you might not outpace inflation. You might actually be, you know, losing money. Correct. And that's why we typically, you know, we certainly recommend an emergency fund, whether that is through a line of credit or, you know, three to six months of savings in your bank account. But Beyond that in your savings, you know, we run, we run clients all the time. You know, I want to feel comfortable with the amount of liquidity I have. I want $100,000 in my bank account. I want $200,000 in my bank account. I don't want to take any risks, so I want it all in my bank account. That is all fine and well, but this is kind of the, the subject of the discussion is that, you know, if inflation is rising by 3%, you're getting one at best at the bank, you, you, the power, purchasing power of your money is basically decreasing. Right, you're losing it because yeah. of the fact that if something costs $1,000 today, and if it's inflated by 3%, it's going to be more than 1,090 in three years. Meanwhile, your savings account grew from 1,000 to 1,030. Okay. <laughs> you pay taxes on that. <laughs> right. You pay taxes on that 30. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't want to say that, though, and always recognize the time horizon, you know, if you're, because we mentioned this in previous episodes. You have $200,000 in the bank that's earmarked for something in a short time horizon. Don't be afraid of inflation. Don't take the risk and invest it, but, you know, just be cognizant of your time horizon with that. Well, so I'm not sure if the individual is talking about how do you combat it from a uh, investment perspective, but one of the things that you can reasonably say about inflation is, as it pertains to the stock markets and particularly the bond markets, is they the other they usually go down. Okay, rule of thumb. Okay, not even rule of thumb. I got to be careful what I say. Um, but one thing, usually when there's inflation. The federal government wants to raise interest rates because inflation occurs when the economy is going and doing well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to slow down the economy, I like to use the um, analogy of the economy is like a fire burning. Okay. And inflation is the result of it. If the economy starts burning really fast, inflation is going to pick up. And what does the government do to try to combat it? They try to raise interest rates which is effectively taking a fire hose to the fire to cool it down, which will cool down interest rates. Well, if the government is ra I'm cooling down inflation, if the government is raising interest rates and the interest rate environment is rising, then that definitely will have an adverse impact on your bond investments. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it very, very tricky from an investment perspective of if the person who asked this question was saying, well, what do I do about my investments? Well, I'm going to immediately make an equate inflation to a rise in interest rates. Okay, okay? it's not, it, there's definitely a direct correlation. So I'm just going to jump to there. So if you're in a rising interest rate environment, you know, there's a handful of things that you want to do or not do when it comes to investing, particularly your fixed income investments, being bonds. You know, what you don't want to do in a rising interest rate environment is have bonds that are long-term bonds. Because what happens is, is they're going to get hurt. The value of them are going to go down. And they're going to go down precipitously. So 
one of the reasons, which one of the things you want to do in a, in a rise in interest rate inflation is reduce the duration of your bonds. Okay, uh, a really tricky thing is shorten treasuries. I'm going to say it real quick and then get out because it's very complex and it's something that we would never recommend anybody do, but by, by rule, okay? Um, another thing is that, you know, inflation protection securities as well as floating rate bonds. You know, floating rate bonds, basically, if the interest rate goes up, then the interest rate of the bond goes up, but the value of the bond generally remains the same. Where I see the biggest impact on inflation in clients' financial picture is typically when you're mapping out how much you need for retirement. If retirement's in 20 years, don't think that number is going to be the same because right. that is that's the also, that's impact of inflation. You have to account for this. No one knows what it's going to be, and it's not a bad thing. As Mike mentioned, you know, it's a sign of a healthy economy as long as it's not getting rampant. But you know, just be cognizant of it. That's all. Well, so using the rule of 72 that we discussed in in prior episodes yeah. is that. You take 72 divided by whether it be a rate of return or inflation. Let's say inflation is 3%. You take 72 divided by 3, and what that means is the number is going to double in 24 years. So if your cost of living is $5,000 a month today, 24 years from now, it's $10,000 a month. Inflation is one of the biggest enemies yes. to a retirement plan. Absolutely. Absolutely. And needs to be considered when you're um, you know, considering how much you need for retirement because don't assume that what you use today, and we all know, you know, costs of a lot of things are are higher, yes. you know, especially yeah, in retirement. Um, and, and you know, so you talk about inflation, you know, there's personal inflation. Um, you know, somebody who's in their 30s or 40s, their inflation is actually lower because of the fact that the single largest expense is their mortgage, and their mortgage is flat. Okay, so it's only their other assets that are or the other cost of living that's inflated. Yes. Meanwhile, those who are in retirement, healthcare represents a much larger percentage of their cost of living, and healthcare is rising at a higher rate of inflation than everything else. So we went off path. I have no idea whether this and, person and, meant to ask that. And not to mention, when they're in retirement, usually they're having a fixed stream of income, right. whether it be from a pension, an annuity, or right. social security. Right, exactly. Um, and, th and that can really play to your detriment. So you, right. you need to factor in inflation when looking at your overall financial plan. Right. Yep. So how do you combat it? Boy, that was, whew, man, we went really far off it's on that one. It's a big topic. But it's you know, it is. It's, you know, inf inflation is something that it's factored into almost everything. <clears throat> we spent a ton of time on that question. That's okay. <laughs> um, but we're up against break, so this is a great opportunity that we can take a break. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll continue on with more questions and answers after this short break. Have you saved enough for retirement? Are you financially prepared for an emergency or unexpected event? Have you thought about your financial future? Hi, I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. For over 20 years, we have been answering our clients' questions just like these as we develop unique and comprehensive financial plans tailored to meet their needs. When addressing your financial plan, we incorporate your entire financial picture, including taxes, estate planning, as well as investment planning and retirement planning. So call us today for a complimentary no-obligation consultation. 
a unique approach to financial planning. Welcome back to Financial Plan and Explain, and I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner. Um, panel is all the way to my right, Kyle Ryan, Certified Financial Planner, and my immediate right in the center is Ryan Keefe. Um, we are continuing on with the questions and answers. Uh, these questions were produced basically uh, by the internet and just commonly asked questions. And through our first segment, we only got through two questions. Can you believe that? All right, let's see if we can do a little bit better than that. All right, our next question. What's the difference between a home equity loan, H-E-L, and a home equity line of credit, a HELOC? You guys want to grab that? A HELOC, simply put, is just being able to access the equity that you've already put into your home. Um, Really, you know, you can take out a line of credit. You don't need to use it. We've previously discussed it can be used as an emergency fund, but it's a way to tap into the equity in your home without directly impacting the equity you have in your home. As and opposed to the home equity loan, yeah. is you're going to take a $20,000 loan. You got yourself a loan. Yep. It's a 10-year loan or 15-year loan at a fixed interest rate, and you're making payments on it, yeah. whereas the line of credit is fluid. Yeah. You can take 1000 you pay interest on it, you can pay it back. So, you know, we've always said that the line of credit yes. is a, a tremendous um, uh, tool. So that was pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> What's our next one? Ooh, can I borrow from an IRA? Well, technically, the answer is no. But in effect, you can. Yeah. Um, and, what, and what we refer to this is the 60-day rule. Right. So you need a certain amount of money. Let's call it 10 grand from your IRA. You can distribute that 10 grand to yourself, and you have 60 days from the time you receive the money to then put it back in your IRA. And it's as if it never happened. There's no tax impact or event. Right. And the, the, it's called an indirect rollover. But the rules with an indirect rollover is that you're only allowed to do it during any 12-month period. So if today was July 1st. Um, it's not that I could do it for the end of the year or to the end of the year. I have to wait until July 1st of the following year. So it's not by calendar year, it's by 12 months. So, you know, use it sparingly. It's an opportunity to do it. But the other thing to point out about IRAs is that they cannot be used as collateral. And I know a lot of people have asked if they can do that. And, you know, like if they want to buy a house or they want to do, you know, and they want to leverage, you can't use an IRA as collateral. Now, I'll tell you what I have done for folks who do actually want to borrow, is if someone has a 401k, what I've done is I've taken their IRA and I've rolled it into their 401k, where you can take a loan against a 401k. And a loan against the 401k is if your 401k allows it, which it's allowed, but if they allow it, you could borrow up to 50%, up to $50,000. So if you have a $40,000 401k, you could borrow up to $20,000, and it's a loan payment for up to five years, comes right out of your paycheck. So that's the only way you can really borrow from an IRA. It's nifty. It's never really advised. But boy, I'll tell you what, it certainly beats pulling it from a credit card and paying 4% up front and having it be 18 or 20%. Yeah, Absolutely. when you borrow against your 401k, you're paying yourself. You are paying yourself. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of people who don't think that you should ever do that. I think like every other financial planning question, it depends. It depends. Okay, let's go for the next one. All right. Ah, I love this one. I want to gift my child some money for a down payment on a house. How much can I give them without having to pay taxes on that gift, the gift tax? I'm going to tackle this one. <laughs> um, this is one of the biggest misnomers out there as far as paying taxes on a gift, the gift tax. So by rule, I can give anybody up to $15,000 per year and not be subject to any type of reporting or gift tax. If I were to gift more than that, then I am. And let's say I'm married and I want to gift my child money. I can, each spouse can gift 15,000. So effectively, jointly, we can gift $30,000. But what happens if I gift more than 15? Let's say I wanted to give them a down payment on a house of $115,000, let's say. Well, first of all, I'm allowed to gift 15, which means I exceeded it by 100. Now, by rule, I love this question. Would you rather pay taxes on that 100,000 or not pay taxes on that 100,000? I'm going to have to not. I don't think I okay, <laughs> I thought so. So, what actually happens here is by rule, you're given the choice of either paying taxes at whatever the estate rate is today, it's 40%. I could pay a 40% tax on that 100,000. Right up front, boom, 40 grand because of the government. All done. Or you file a gift tax return, which is just another page of your tax return that goes to your tax return that declares I gifted 100000 over the $15,000 limit. So what happens here is if or when I die, if the estate exemption is $11 million, well, I already gave away 100000 That means my exemption means 10900000 You subtract that 100000 off the back end. And if you're nowhere near having enough assets to have an impact on the back end, why in the world would you pay taxes? That's simple. So it's a misnomer. Uh, unless you're extraordinarily wealthy, and if you are, trust me, you probably have a CPA and a state attorney that you're going to be making these determinations. I wouldn't worry about it, but again, I would talk to your accountant or whoever your tax preparer is or your financial advisor to confirm that it's the right thing for you. But again, it's not an issue for most people out there. Yep. Okay. Uh, next question. What is that one? Um, oh, house to child. Is that, that, oh, that, oh, we moved uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I'm, I'm considering gifting my house. Read out. I'm considering gifting my house to my child. When should I do this to be the most tax efficient? I'm going to jump on that one when you go finish sure. up. Sure. So uh, one common, uh, you know, error we'll call it. We see a lot of times is uh, parents want to be, you know. They want to be really nice to their children. So they think, oh, you know what? I don't have a lot to give them other than my home. So what I'm going to do is while I'm alive, I'm going to give them my home. And while it sounds all good and well, 
there's actually a lot of tax impacts that could be very detrimental to your children by doing that. Um, essentially, a home is considered a non-qualified asset. And upon your death, you receive what's called a step-up in basis. So if you paid $30,000 for that house, you know, 30-some years ago, and now it's appreciated all the way up to 300000 when you die and the house goes to its beneficiaries, it's as if they paid 300000 not 30000 right. for that house. Therefore, avoiding a large capital gain, which a lot of times that capital gain will hit the children during right. their prime earning years as right. well. Well, one of the other reasons why people gift the house is not as much to say, hey, I want to give you kids the house. They'll oftentimes do that with, let's say, a shore property. But a lot of times what they do is they say, I'm going to gift my residence because if for some reason I have to go into a nursing home, I don't want them to take my house and all my assets, et cetera, et cetera. And once again, uh, we've seen this backfire more times than not as far as gifting a house that you know all of a sudden the kids end up paying uh, taxes on uh, the capital gains tax. So, you know, again, everybody's situation is different. It depends, but not always the best idea. We encourage you to speak with your financial advisor or your attorney or estate planner or estate attorney on that. Next question. My employer offers a traditional IRA and four, or traditional 401k. Which one should I choose and why? We kind of talked about that earlier. Right. Um, you're talking about the IRA versus the Roth IRA or the traditional. It's the same thing, traditional 401k versus Roth 401k. Uh, we pretty much went through that earlier. Yeah. So I don't know. I'll, I'll just add one little point to this question. Um, if you do decide to go down the route of the Roth 401k and you think that that's going to be the most beneficial to you, just be aware that your employer, although they will still match your oh, yeah. Roth contributions, those are going to be pre-tax contributions. So you're actually going to have a little bit of money set aside in a traditional 401k. So you actually have two buckets. Yeah. Some people don't understand that and they don't. They wonder what it is. That's that's what that is. In fact, a lot of times people are like, "Well, you know, they're not going to match my Roth." They do. They match the they Roth. Do. I mean, if it's it's just like Ryan said that it's not going to be tax-free for you. So if you're contributing six percent and the company matches half of that, they're putting in three. Effectively, what's going into your 401k is 6% is going to the tax-free Roth, and 3% is going to the pre-tax traditional. After all, the company is getting a tax deduction for that contribution. Yep. So it works the same way. So uh, I don't think we have enough time for any more questions on this particular episode. So what we'll do is we'll save the rest of them for uh, the next couple of weeks. How's that sound? Absolutely. Sounds great. All right. So yeah. well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, once again, I hope that uh, this has been helpful uh, learning experience to you. Um, and we'll be back again uh, next week, and we'll continue to do more uh, questions and answers. And so thank you very much for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful day and wonderful week, and we will see you at the next episode. Thank you very much, and have a great one.